I'm Barbara Bogave, and you're listening to How Governments Can Help or Harm Entrepreneurs on America Abroad. It's an entrepreneur's dream. You go online, you file your article of association, and you get a tax number. So everything is in a few minutes. That's all it takes to start a company in Singapore, the easiest place in the world to do business, says a recent World Bank ranking. The key? Lots of government reforms to help with mundane but really critical things, like untangling property rights, getting electricity, or enforcing construction contracts. By the way, the United States does pretty well in this ranking. It comes in at number four, and that may be because entrepreneurship is an American theme, as it was in President Obama's last State of the Union address. An entrepreneur flipped on the lights in her tech startup and did her part to add to the more than eight million new jobs our businesses have created over the past four years. Entrepreneurship is hailed as a way to reduce unemployment and preserve our competitive edge abroad. But how does government work best to promote new businesses and keep them afloat, especially here in the U.S., the world's largest economy? Politicians tend to celebrate such things as government-sponsored enterprise zones and business incubators. One of the reasons why you see so many young entrepreneurs coming up with such great ideas that end up getting to market is because of the government support and projects like the incubators. But in the large scheme of things, these zones and incubators may be fairly limited in their ability to create new entrepreneurs. In the next hour, we delve into what works and what doesn't when governments get involved, and we compare those efforts to those around the world. We start with Youngstown, Ohio, a city that's still trying to recover from the collapse of the steel industry nearly 40 years ago. It's responded by creating an innovation hub with the help of President Obama. We created our first manufacturing innovation institute in Youngstown, Ohio. A once shuttered warehouse is now a state-of-the-art lab where new workers are mastering the 3D printing that has the potential to revolutionize the way we make almost everything. The Institute is funded by $70 million of corporate and federal money and now known as America Makes. Stephen Adams is the president of the American Institute for Economic Research, and he spent five years in an unusual federal agency called the Office of Advocacy. It's part of the Small Business Administration. I asked him about Mr. Obama's mention of innovation hubs. He wasn't enthusiastic. Well, I can't say I know the details of the president's plan in depth, but to me it sounded like the rebirth of enterprise zones, which seems to be sort of the zombie economic development idea. Uh, They keep uh, killing these things and they keep coming back. So just to be clear, enterprise zones were developed in the 1980s. Unlike incubators and innovation hubs, these usually meant a geographic area that was suffering, like a city or a region. The government would go in and extend tax breaks to entice private sector investment to that hard-hit area. But to Adams, even though zones may be different from hubs and incubators in structure, they're similar in their shortcomings. They tend to be very showy, but they don't tend to result in a lot of economic results. We'll come back to Adams, but first we take a closer look at the institute America makes. It's not expressly geared towards entrepreneurship, but its partner, a Youngstown-based small business incubator, is. Now WCPN's David Barnett looks at the effect the partnership has had on the economy. 
The Youngstown Business Incubator, or YBI, provides the basics that a young company would need, such as office space, telephones, computers, internet, and video conferencing for free or greatly reduced rates. It is a high-functioning incubator in that the tenants also have access to learning labs and a network of 7,000 business professionals. It's funded by a combination of federal, state, and private money. We've gone from two and a half floors of this five-story building in 2001 to over 120,000 square feet in four buildings, all interconnected. As CEO of YBI, Jim Kostler plays mother hen to a collection of tech startup firms in some old downtown buildings, long abandoned but now buzzing with activity. So it, it kind of put the play in. So this is retail dry goods here. YBI has been identified as one of the top incubators in the world because it is very selective about who it lets in and sets high performance standards. So far, the incubator's startups have generated close to $76 million in sales and created or supported more than 600 jobs. With all the heat YBI has gotten, it's no accident that the Manufacturing Institute, called America Makes and hailed by the president, has been located on YBI's campus. Humtown Products is one of the projects approved by America Makes. They specialize in 3D printing. If you go there, you can see the computer image of an automotive part being built. A printhead goes back and forth, spraying successive layers of plastic on top of each other, gradually creating a three-dimensional object. America Makes, also considered an innovation hub, is like a test kitchen where consortiums of university researchers and corporations get access to very expensive machinery to experiment with different aspects of 3D printing. This is strictly research and has little, if any, immediate impact on jobs, so it's not really surprising that Cleveland Federal Reserve economist Joel Elvery says the potential of 3D technology on Youngstown's job growth is limited. Many regions have tried. Few have had successful harnessing of technology and federal research spending to really grow their region. It's, it's a difficult thing. Moreover, Elvery suggests that all the cheerleading should be tempered by the reality that new technology comes with a cost. One of the risks of this sort of focus on manufacturing that the Obama administration's had is that people have in mind that these plants are going to come and these plants will have many, many jobs. The way that manufacturing works nowadays is that there's fewer and fewer people. And so whereas you got an auto part plant in you know, 1990, that might mean 500 jobs or 600 jobs. You get an auto part plant now, it means 100 to 200 jobs. Still, longtime Youngstown resident Presley Gillespie is optimistic about the potential for local jobs and says it's great to see downtown come alive with new shops, restaurants, and apartments catering to the young tech workers at the incubator. But as executive director of the Youngstown Neighborhood Development Corporation, Gillespie says he hasn't seen any of that prosperity trickle outside of the central city. There are jobs, I believe, being created and opportunities, but we need to figure out how to make sure that those jobs are accessible by the residents that live in our neighborhoods because we still have high concentrations of poverty. The area still has an unemployment rate of 7.6 percent and lost 400 jobs last year. That's still a long way from a thriving economy. In Ohio, I'm David C. Barnett for America Abroad.
Stephen Adams wouldn't be surprised by this conclusion. He's the president of the American Institute for Economic Research. I asked him why innovation hubs and incubators aren't in general effective. Isn't the idea of geographic proximity and clustering important to innovation? It absolutely is the way innovation happens, and it's sort of the general idea of trying to cluster smart people and, and companies that have similar interests together makes a lot of sense. The The thing that doesn't ever work is government trying to manage that or engineering that. Those typically are very successful when they happen organically, when market forces are at play and where people are betting their own money and energy and ideas and they generate innovation. Uh, often when we try to force it with government programs or they're trying to locate people or, or drive government money into programs, you're basically uh, trying to supplement or complement what the market's going to do anyway. And uh, so they have not been very successful. Uh, it's just not the best way for government to put its time and energy if they're trying to promote innovation or entrepreneurship. Is that because government can't find the winning horse to bet on, or is it because of the funding model that administrations change and funding is uncertain and, and can suddenly go away? And then what happens to your innovation hub? Well, I think it's because what government is most effective at and good at are the things that they tend not to put into these programs. So government is uh, especially structured to uh, have effective legal systems where people's rights can be protected, patent rights or property rights can be protected. You have a legal system where you might have business courts or other kinds of uh, court and legal systems that where entrepreneurs might have an opportunity to protect their rights in that situation. Or you might have a regulatory structure where government should focus its energy on being really efficient about the way that it regulates uh, companies and individuals and ideas. And uh, those are the things that government can do effectively. When it comes to financing, the United States has probably the most efficient capital markets on the planet. And uh, ideas that need financing and deserve financing, that the market proves will work, will get financing. If you look at census data, and the last time they asked businesses about where they got their startup money, Less than 1% of businesses got their startup money from government-supported programs. And that's slightly more than get venture capital. So government does flashy things with capital, but it's not where most companies get started. They get their capital from their, their own savings and from the private sector. And when government spends money on things that aren't in their wheelhouse, financing and other ways that are driving uh, government resources to companies – um, they're doing things that aren't inside their expertise level, and they're trying to supplant the market, which is really effective at picking winners and uh, making people uh, make it their own investments, put their own skin in the game, and uh, do the things that it takes to be successful in an entrepreneurial environment. Why is this the idea, then, that won't die? Why does government keep coming back to this innovation hub or enterprise zone idea? Well, I think because it's really um, more interesting than the mundane things of government. So if you pick a geography, you can um, benefit a very tiny, small number of businesses, but you've picked a geography. So everybody in that geography feels good. You've now got friends in that geography. And government activity works best where it's local. And so people uh, benefit from picking a geography. The second reason that this happens is because it's much more interesting, it's more sexy to talk about financing than it is about the mundane issues of making sure the regulatory process is efficient, making sure companies get curb cuts when they need it, or making sure that the permit inspector shows up on time. The things that really matter to companies, 
it's not very exciting. It's hard to run for governor or run for president on making sure curb cuts get done. It's much more exciting to say, hey, we have this cool fund or this cool venture capital fund, and uh, it's much more interesting and gets more attention. Makes sense. Okay, well, let's get unsexy then and talk about these very mundane aspects of government. And it sounds to me like many of the things that you're advocating add up to a kind of caretaker approach uh, with government support. Uh, Government as a protector of businesses taking a risk with innovation that likely takes time to develop. What I'm getting at is, you know, government playing the role that it's best suited for. And for instance, the two things that I've been talking about, one is sort of the regulatory environment and one is uh, protecting the intellectual property rights of entrepreneurs. And let's talk about the regulatory environment. Um, a lot of people will say, gee, we got to keep regulations as low as possible so government businesses don't have to spend a lot of money on regulation. That's not what I'm talking about. Uh, regulations need to uh, – the appropriate regulations need to be at the level that they need to be there to protect public interest, whether it's public safety or worker safety or financial uh, consumers or what have you. You need the regulations that are in place to meet public interest. But what's really crucial is the government's really efficient about the way they implement those regulations so that they be attentive to smaller firms. Most regulations are built with very large corporations in mind. And so the legal hassles, the paperwork, the reporting, the testing, all those things that large corporations find relatively easy become extremely expensive for a very small business or an entrepreneur to be able to finance. And so it's not very interesting to evaluate your regulatory process with small businesses in mind. But it makes a huge difference to a small firm that now might have to spend tens of thousands of dollars to comply with some important regulation that wouldn't mean anything to Google but would mean a lot to some small startup. Uh, Those things take time. It means uh, it's not exciting to adapt your regulatory process, but it could mean the difference between a company succeeding and failing just because the regulatory burden on them is higher than some large firm with a team of lawyers or a team of engineers in place. Stephen Adams, the president of the American Institute for Economic Research. His skepticism about the success of government-funded entrepreneurial programs, specifically incubators, is not shared by everyone, though. There are more than 1,200 of these incubators nationwide. They're funded by a combination of local government agencies, universities, and sometimes federal grants, though no one knows how much local money goes into them. Adam Hochberg reports. The quest for good-paying jobs has sparked the growth of incubators all over the country and led the federal government to invest a total of $60 million in them in the past five years. Still, there's little hard data on how well incubators achieve their two main goals, fostering new companies and putting people to work. And the research that does exist is inconsistent. Running an incubator takes a lot of resources, and it's unclear whether it's a good investment in the long term. Syracuse University management professor Alejandro Amesqua looked at more than 1,000 incubators and found the average company employed fewer than five people and was no more likely to succeed in an incubator than in a regular office park or in somebody's attic. Out of the companies that I looked at, which are about 18,500, 42% of them go out of business by their fourth year, which is likely a parallel statistic when you look at the general trends among all startups. People who run incubators reject those findings and counter with studies of their own, including a 2008 Commerce Department report that concluded incubators create jobs better than any of the other public works projects the department funds. 
Dinah Atkins is the former president of the National Business Incubation Association. We know anecdotally and we know by record keeping in local communities that there have been thousands and thousands of businesses developed in incubators now. And there are incubators all over the country that are having success and creating jobs. One of the reasons the research on incubators varies so much is that the incubators themselves vary a lot. While some provide classes, guidance, and in a few cases, direct subsidies to entrepreneurs, others do little more than rent office space. Atkins says the bottom line is that well-managed incubators deliver results, and substandard ones often don't. The business incubation program itself needs to be run like a business in terms of budgeting and revenues and all that kind of stuff. The management has to be tied into the business community because this isn't a social service that you're providing. You're providing business assistance services. Those business assistance services are a big part of what's now the fastest growing group of incubators, those affiliated with colleges, like this one at the University of North Carolina. Amesqua found college-based incubators among the most successful, perhaps because they emphasize teaching and mentoring. Joel Bush established his commercial laundry business at UNC's center, even though he had already started nine businesses on his own. No matter how many times you've done it, you have a million questions about the right way to do it or the latest trends or whatever. And so this kills several birds with one stone. Here for me, you've got great advisors who are willing to help us get our feet under us first. UNC's center, called Launch Chapel Hill, is less than a year old, and entrepreneurship professor Ted Zoller says it tried to avoid the mistakes of earlier government-owned incubators. In fact, Zoller doesn't call it an incubator at all, but rather a business accelerator, a term borrowed from private sector operations that provide venture capital to young businesses. Launch doesn't fund companies, but Zoller runs it with an investor's mentality. He gives entrepreneurs six months to form their companies and move out, instead of the three years they might spend in an incubator. I think that largely incubation is a flawed model. I think what we found with the first round of incubators that were built is, you know, they're given all of the financial assets to build what could be a company without ever testing the proposition of the business. Uh, whereas Launch Chapel Hill, you can't come here unless you've already started to test it and then we're giving you tools to help you test it in a better way. Zoller says while government can play a role in fostering entrepreneurship, it has to be realistic and understand that young businesses can only affect the local economy modestly, especially if they're replacing a traditional employer like a textile mill or steel plant. Zoller says some cities create incubators with what he calls a field of dreams attitude, simply believing that if they build it, jobs will come. And those communities, he says, likely will be disappointed. In Chapel Hill, North Carolina, I'm Adam Hochberg for America Abroad. This is Robert Lighton, and I'm Director of Research at Bloomberg Government and formerly was Vice President for Research at the Kauffman Foundation. Robert Lighton argues that even if you build a better incubator or innovation hub, the approaches still have dubious results. The successful ones, he says, have historically grown from scratch. I'll give you a perfect example. Let's take Walmart. Bentonville was enough in place. And then Walmart came along, and now Bentonville is hopping. And Bentonville's close to the University of Arkansas and Fayetteville. And so that's a perfect example of an area where, through serendipity, one major company made a big deal out of the area. Ditto with Austin. Austin was a sleepy place, other than the University of Texas, until Michael Dell made a big deal out of it. Now, some people say that Semitech helped it, I think which it did. But I think, really, Michael Dell helped put Austin on the map. And now Austin's really hot. It's a you know, for music and other tech companies and so forth that are all spinoffs or related to either Semitech or Dell. 
So when the president talks about trying to remake areas that have really been hit, I mean, I know there have been some green shoots in Youngstown and so forth, but I think it's very difficult with affirmative government policy to turn something around. Um, I mean, I think if you're going to do it, the magic bullet, if, if anything, is if you can find a way to change the schools, do a good job, especially in education and, and in amenities. And that makes uh, college-educated people want to stay. There's a lot of economic evidence that shows that one of the best predictors of a success of any city or town is the percentage of the population that is young and that has college degrees. And if you can basically educate them or attract them so that they stay there, that's the best thing you can do. So, we asked him, when is it ever a good idea to allocate government money directly to companies? Well, I know the administration tried that in the Stimulus Act, and of course we had the celebrated failure of Solyndra. The administration, though, points out that, you know, that was the exception rather than the rule. Well, I think the big challenge that the country faces is turning around the disappointing formation rate of new companies over the last several years. You know, until the recession, there were about five or 600,000 companies formed a year, and it was pretty stable, it was non-cyclical. But then the recession hit, and we fell from roughly 600,000 to 400,000 starts a year. And we've come back a little bit since then. I think we're in the 420, 430 range. But we're nowhere near the pre-recession peak. And so the challenge of the country, really, to get back on track and get its mojo back, is to get a lot more new startups, especially in the tech area. And we're a long way from that. And by the way, when I say tech, I don't mean just mobile apps. The economy cannot survive on you know, multiple WhatsApps. There just aren't enough people working for WhatsApps to really get the economy going. And it made those people rich, but we need lots of companies that are not WhatsApps, but that are in the hundred million, a billion dollar range that are doing new cool things. And the question is, what can the government do? And I'll tell you, I think the single most important thing is it can facilitate crowdfunding. And the SEC has proposed new rules uh, for crowdfunding under the Jobs Act, which I think are on the onerous side. And I think if you talk to entrepreneurs, they're on the onerous side. And I would hope that in doing their final rules that the SEC would give a little more credit to the marketplace, worry a little less about fraud, and just take some risk. Because the country is not going to get out of its rut unless we collectively take risk. And we've got to allow funders to be able to take risk. If we have a minor degree of fraud, I think it's worth the price for all the legitimate money that's going to flow to a lot of companies recognizing most of them will be failures, but that's the way things are. But we need the risk-taking in order to get the successes. I would rather try to keep the government to supporting basic R&D and handing it out to universities, not to commercial enterprises, because that's the, the, the commercial end is really where the private sectors ought to be financing. Robert Lighton. He's the director of research at Bloomberg Government. Supporting basic research and development is what the government does with DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. A good test case to see how direct funding by the government can spur innovation that will, in turn, inspire entrepreneurial business. President Eisenhower set up the agency to invest in new military technologies. Over the decades, it's created groundbreaking inventions, many of which have been adapted for civilian use. Computer networking, GPS, also Siri. Jennifer Strong reports. At a conference in Washington, D.C., economists, professors, and policymakers are discussing a hot topic, the role of government in research and innovation. The keynote speaker is economist Mariana Mazzucato. She's the author of the best-selling book, The Entrepreneurial State. 
She believes public money is critical. She says venture capitalists, or VC, have lower risk tolerance and shorter attention spans. VC today is not putting money into the hard stuff. VC is becoming increasingly short-termist. It wants its returns in three years. That's maybe fine for some gadgets, but innovation and in clean technology and nanotechnology and biotechnology requires 15 to 20 years. Defense research agency DARPA funds these kinds of difficult and risky projects. To call a project risky means that many will fail for each one that succeeds. Dr. Arthi Prabhakar is DARPA's director. DARPA was created to have the ability to reach for enormous impact. We're completely willing to take risk when we see the potential for a big impact. Uh, and so we actively seek out researchers, sometimes in universities, sometimes in companies, other labs. To be clear here, creating entrepreneurs has nothing to do with DARPA's mission. The innovations they fund go far beyond military use, but turning a discovery into a consumer product that creates jobs, well, that's up to the scientist and private capital. Arthi Prabhakar. A lot of the early pieces of the information revolution, material science even before that, uh, work in electronics. Most iconically, of course, was uh, this little project from the late 60s that was the ARPANET, which became the Internet. Those are great examples of technologies that have transformed national security, but have also changed how we live and work. Marianne Mazzucato says Google's algorithm was created with government research dollars, and she says it was DARPA that created much of what makes an iPhone an iPhone. You can surf the web with the internet. You can know where you are through GPS. You can use it in a very user-friendly way with um, touchscreen display. You can even talk into it with a Siri. Well, all of those four technologies were funded by government. But Philip Carter says the government's role in technology products is overstated. He's a senior fellow at the defense think tank, CNAS. I think the case study of Siri puts the cart before the horse. It's true that Siri is a component of the iPhone. It's not necessarily true that the private sector wouldn't have developed Siri or something better for the iPhone without DARPA funding. Carter also thinks DARPA is not as important as it once was to public research outside of the military. In the big picture, DARPA is a small player in the world of business and the world of innovation. DARPA provides some seed capital, but it's really dwarfed by what the private sector provides. But that public seed capital is necessary, says MIT professor Yoel Fink. He developed a new generation of optical fibers with DARPA funding. Today, those fibers are the basis of a company that produces one of the world's most precise surgical scalpels. Fink says DARPA funds proved those fibers were possible. But in order to get it out into the marketplace, one needed a much larger amount of capital. But since the idea or the technology was de-risked from a standpoint of, is it possible at all? Then the private sector was prepared to step in and to fund it. Fink directs MIT's research lab of electronics called the RLE. It covers things like atomic physics and nanoscale science. DARPA money has gone to a variety of projects here, including work with ultra-cold atoms, which won a Nobel Prize. Fink says DARPA allows for a more open scientific process, which he says is important in high-risk research. Most funding partners require benchmarks for reaching goals. The process of scientific research is a process of discovery. And so if you take, for example, uh, Columbus, he had a very specific mission, and the mission was find a shortcut to India. Now, had the king of uh, Spain at the time held him accountable to achieving his goal, 
He basically would have stopped funding because, hey, he didn't find the shortcut to India. DARPA's annual budget hovers around $3 billion. Most of that goes to funding research projects. Japan is in the process of starting its own version of DARPA in an effort to spur research and innovation there. In Washington, I'm Jennifer Strong for America Abroad. You're listening to How Governments Can Help or Harm Entrepreneurs on America Abroad. Coming up, why Singapore's government is the best in the world when it comes to supporting innovative business. Let us know your thoughts about the program. You can tweet us at America underscore abroad. I'm Barbara Bogave, and you're listening to How Governments Can Help or Harm Entrepreneurs on America Abroad. Every year since 2002, the World Bank runs something called the Doing Business Project. It ranks 189 economies by 10 criteria to determine where it's easiest for firms to do business. The criteria focus on how government shapes business regulation. For instance, they look at things like whether those regulations are effective in helping startups or can businesses get city permits or electricity quickly. The winners were... Singapore, followed by Hong Kong, and New Zealand. The U.S. is number four. Frederick Munier is a member of the Doing Business team. I asked him what makes Singapore the standout. The government is making it easy for entrepreneurs to start uh, their business and operate every year. They have two new reforms last year, for example. They introduced online uh, registration for property and land, and they also increased the rights of borrowers uh, to get access to the information. Singapore has topped the ranking for a few years, and every year the government is making it easier uh, for you to start and operate a business. For example, if you want to start a business in Singapore, you go online, you file your article of association, and you get a tax number and everything. So everything, it's in a few minutes. If you want to start a business, let's say New York, first you have to reserve your name, then you have to file your articles of association, then you have to apply for the federal employer's identification number, then you have to apply for the uh, state's uh, registration tax, and etc. So you have different requirements that were streamlined in Singapore and also in New Zealand and in other countries that made life easy for entrepreneurs. And in the end that you see like for Singapore, you have nine new limited liability per 1,000 inhabitants a year. In New Zealand, it's about 15 new LLC per 1,000 inhabitants a year, which is way higher than the average in the world. So there is an impact of making life easy for entrepreneurs. Huh, well, I'm looking at the top 10, and that includes starting with Singapore, Hong Kong, China, New Zealand, the U.S., Denmark, Malaysia, South Korea, Georgia, Norway, and the U.K., and I understand what you're saying, that a well-organized economy and well-organized, efficient government eases the way for business. But that's a wide variety of countries in that top 10. What do they all have in common? They have the commitment from the top to reform. That's the first thing you need in a country to make reforms. They all have in common that over the past years, they implemented reforms, and it's not a one-stand project, that the, the government was really committed to reform, and that made a difference in the end. Um, they also streamlined the requirements for businesses in a way that they should comply with the regulation, but at the same time, they shouldn't spend too much time on the process. They should spend time on their business. And in all these countries, uh, an entrepreneur can easily start a business, pay taxes, and uh, enforce contracts. And that's uh, an effort over a long time. Well, they're very different categories. It's, it's interesting. Your categories, and you, you've just mentioned some of them, they include ease of doing business and protecting investors. But they're also really nitty-gritty things like, like getting electricity and, and dealing with construction permits. So how do you weigh those out? And, and do all those things get equal 
weight when you're ranking countries' uh, support of entrepreneurship? This is a really interesting question. So as I was mentioning before, we have 10 indicators from starting a business, electricity, building permits, property rights, enforcing contracts, etc. So we do not assign weights. We just look at the distribution on each of, of the indicators and we have a simple average of all indicators. And in the end, we get the ranking. So this is just a simple weight because we think that the simple, uh, it needs to be simple so that people understand the way we do it. And that's why the doing business gets so much attraction, because it's easy to understand. That's really simple and transparent methodology. Now, why don't we see a country's GDP or, or number of billionaires as part of the criteria for your, <laughs> for your rankings? I mean, isn't, isn't that important, how much wealth is in any particular country and whether a country has a whole pool of angel investors? It's it's a good idea. I will uh, I will pass it to my manager. But the, um, <laughs> you're the, laughing. Why are you <laughs> laughing? <laughs> no, no, because we look at small and medium-sized enterprises. So we really look at the regulations that apply to small businesses from five mm. to ten employees, and we look at the burden that they have to suffer when they have to operate their business. Uh, actually, we are looking at other indicators to expand the scope of uh, of the report. But it's more about technology, uh, labor regulations, and other areas of regulations. But uh, I, will, I will think about this idea of billionaires. That's a good one. <laughs> and you'll credit us, of course. <laughs> yes. <laughs> one of the places you might think of as a startup nation is Israel. It has a booming high-tech sector, and it's gotten a lot of attention for the innovative thinking coming out of there. But even so, it ranks pretty far down on the World Bank's Doing Business Project, coming in at number 38. From Jerusalem, reporter Linda Gradstein looks into the reasons for this discrepancy. Every Thursday late afternoon, just before the Israeli weekend starts, all of the 50 employees of Fourier Systems gather in the company's meeting room in Rosh Ha'ayin in central Israel for snacks and a science lecture, this week on jellyfish. The 25-year-old company makes tablet computers with sensor-based technologies for teaching science in high schools and recently won an award for the best new digital device. CEO Ken Zwiebel says the company started with two guys who had an idea. Then the Israeli government stepped in. I have never seen another government around the world that has been as encouraging as the Israeli government is and as helpful as the Israeli government is in helping get startups off the ground. And I think that one of the reasons why you see so many young entrepreneurs coming out with ideas and, and forming companies around them and coming up with such great ideas that end up getting to market is because of the government support and projects like the incubators. There are some 20 incubators around Israel. The Israeli government offers no-risk loans of half a million dollars as well as office space. Zwiebel, who used to work in an incubator, describes it like being in your parents' garage, only better. So you kind of get thrown into an office setting, of course. You're working in a very kind of open environment with three, four, or maybe even ten companies all working together. There's a lot of camaraderie that's built inside the incubator between the companies. CEOs are helping each other out get to market. I know this person. I know that person. I can help you here. I can help you there. And technologists are helping each other out, helping each other out with code, helping each other out with technologies and new technologies. Israeli Foreign Ministry spokesman Paul Hirschen says the Israeli government works hard to identify potential markets and investors, often bringing them to Israel. Often called the startup nation, the government says Israel has more startups per capita than anywhere else in the world. We had 26 exits, uh, 11 IPOs in NASDAQ, and 15 M&As, uh, mergers and acquisitions. 
that's Uri Adoni, a partner at JVP Media Labs, part of one of Israel's largest capital venture funds that controls more than $1 billion. He says Israel has a unique pool of entrepreneurs from both the cyber units in the Israeli army, as well as hundreds of thousands of immigrants from the former Soviet Union. Israeli culture, he says, encourages innovation. In Israel, if you don't make the first startup, you go and make the second startup, or the third startups. And actually the community, whether it's your family or your friends or the investors for that matter, they don't label you as a failure because you took the chance, you dived into the water, and some succeed and most don't succeed. But once you move beyond the high-tech industry, the picture is not nearly as rosy. Uh, the second uh, entrepreneurial culture is the one that uh, involves the rest of the economy and providing kind of normal goods and services uh, directed towards the domestic market. And here, Israel doesn't have such a very strong performance at all. That's David Rosenberg, economics editor of the Israeli Haaretz newspaper in English. The biggest obstacle, he says, is a cumbersome bureaucracy. Uh, here, the entrepreneur will typically come up against a rigid bureaucracy, uh, labyrinthine tax regime, markets that are often non uncompetitive or uh, controlled by monopolies, and so the attraction of going to business is relatively low. He says Israel, though a Western country in many ways, still has a Mediterranean bureaucracy. Israel, for better or for worse, is in many ways, certainly in terms of government and bureaucracy, more like Greece and Italy or Spain than it is like Sweden or the United States or England. Government operates with a very heavy hand. It's very, very inefficient. And um, I think that's the key barrier. Yosef Abramowitz, CEO of Global Energia, agrees. He says that in the renewable energy field, different government offices have overlapping responsibility, and it can be cumbersome to navigate. His company has just closed on building the first commercial solar field in sub-Saharan Africa at a youth village in Rwanda. It will eventually supply some 8% of the country's power. Israel itself, we're a small country. We are a technology hub from the north to the south and in the center. Uh, we're small. We're, we're like New Jersey. So I don't think there's a country like us uh, that really has the combination of the uh, military, the research institutions, the kind of uh, immigrant base with, with higher education. He says that's why Israel will continue to be a high-tech superpower. Now it's just up to the government to streamline the bureaucracy. In Jerusalem, I'm Linda Gradstein for America Abroad. You're listening to how governments can help or harm entrepreneurs on America Abroad. Coming up, how the government helped Walt Disney become such a success. To learn more, and you can also see photographs, just visit us on our website, americaabroad.org. I'm Barbara Bogave, and you're listening to how governments can help or harm entrepreneurs on America Abroad. If you're just joining us, we were talking about Israel as a high-tech hub. And in order to help streamline their regulatory environment, they might adopt something called a business court. It hasn't gotten a lot of press, but it's an increasingly effective institution that can help businesses from all sectors cut through red tape. Massachusetts, for instance, has one. It was started in 2000. Paul Dacier is the president of the Boston Bar Association and executive vice president and general counsel of the EMC Corporation. The business court there was initially created to coordinate inconsistent rulings regarding Massachusetts' booming high-tech sector. It was thought by the administrators and the chief judges that they needed to have a court dedicated to business matters, and so that's why the court was established, so that you had predictability, efficiency, and uh, consistency in decisions that were being rendered. 
And how exactly does the court work and what distinguishes it from other civil courts, which makes it so attractive to entrepreneurs? In Massachusetts, the general trial court is known as the superior court. And if there is a matter where somebody needs help in business cases, there are four judges now in the business litigation session that are dedicated to hearing business and complex cases. And when a person files the complaint, the matter can be heard almost immediately depending on what somebody is asking for. So, for example, if somebody has taken or stolen trade secrets and the company or the aggrieved party needs to have an immediate ruling, the action could be brought in the business litigation session and a hearing could be held and a decision could be rendered in a matter of days, if not less than a week. That sounds remarkable because I usually you wait and wait and wait for a court date. But could you give us a, a sense of how important that would be to a business not to have a delay? Well, that's right. Businesses operate at warp speed in today's world. Everything is 24 by 7. Businesses can't wait. They have to make sure that they're always protecting their intellectual property. That's their competitive edge. That's their innovation. That's their standing in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts in the United States and the world. If they can't have an immediate ruling on their legitimate legal rights, they can be out of business. So the speed is a game changer. That is a game changer, and that's a competitive edge also for the court. Now, you said there are four judges in this uh, business litigation court, but one judge, I understand, handles a case from beginning to end, which is not often not the case in, in civil court. Can you tell us why it's set up that way and just how small businesses benefit from that? Having one jurist who is completely familiar with the facts and circumstances of the case will lead to consistency in how the matter is handled. So that is why there is one judge through the life of the case. So I think that benefits the uh, business litigant because he or she or the entity is going to know that there is not a delay, there's not inconsistencies, there's not uncertainty if somebody new comes into the case. And this is such an issue because business litigation is so complex? It, in many instances, can be very complex, very fact-intensive, but also the key thing, Barbara, is the rapid nature of the need for a decision. And I can't stress that enough, that businesses want an answer right away. CEOs do not want to wait. CEOs want to know how they can run their business or what a ruling will be from a court to protect their intellectual property rights or their shareholder rights. Well, stolen trade secrets is so at the heart of, of small businesses. They often start with this one great idea, and, and it's a, uh, the nightmare of every entrepreneur that their idea could be snatched out from under That's them right. by a disgruntled employee or, or, or a devious potential investor. So how do these courts protect intellectual property in a way that the, the normal courts weren't, weren't doing the job? The business litigation session has judges that are there. They're expert in these areas. They know the law cold. They don't have to sit there while the case is being argued to figure out what the law is. They know what the law is, so they can act very quickly. They know that trade secret misappropriation, if not dealt with immediately, will put somebody out of business and will not only hurt them, the economy, and employees, but it will hurt our standing competitively worldwide. 
So over these past almost 15 years, what kind of significant impact have you seen on businesses in the, in the Boston area because of them? I think there's a, a great increase in perception of the efficiency of the courts and also the climate as to how the courts will look at these cases because there also has been a school of thought that the courts in general have been hostile to business interests and I do not see that at all. And I also find that uh, lawyers now are advising clients to use the business litigation session rather than going through the private arbitration or private litigation process. Well, looking nationally, roughly about 25 states have taken Massachusetts' lead and, and formed some kind of a separate business court. Have you noticed right. any interesting innovations elsewhere that you'd like to see put in place in, in your, your native home? One of the things that the business litigation session judges have done is to establish a program that streamlines cases that they are involved immediately working with the litigants and the lawyers to determine the course of the case, but also having phased discovery a few years ago. So, for example, instead of a discovery request asking for everything from the beginning of time to the current point, it would be, for example, in a trade secret matter relating to some particular individuals or a particular department rather than the whole company. And so through this phased discovery, they're finding that the cost of litigation is dramatically less. The fact that the U.S. is one of the best places in the world to start a business is no accident. Our government has evolved over the centuries to encourage entrepreneurs in one key area, bankruptcy law. And it's really one of the big things that makes America much more entrepreneurial than other countries. So, says Stephen J. Adams, president of the American Institute for Economic Research, it's the ability of companies to try and to fail and to try again that's baked into our legal culture. Nothing's impossible, I have found. When my chin is on the ground, I pick myself up, dust myself off, start all over again. You want people to take risk. There has to be or needs to be some sort of safety net. This is David Cotter. And I'm the managing director of the Co-Guide Tax Center at American University. He says falling flat on your face is an American tradition. But so is trying harder the second time. Risk-taking is encouraged, but personal disaster is not. In fact, some of the most successful entrepreneurs in our country's history have gone belly up before striking it rich thanks to our bankruptcy laws. Get the facts on Ford Economy. Then take the wheel and test drive the big new Ford. Henry Ford, for example, in his first effort, was focused primarily on engineering the car that he was building. And he spent so much time engineering the car, he didn't spend much time selling the car. And next thing you know, his business was in bankruptcy. Two years later, he left that business, which continued to exist, started his own business, the Henry Ford Company, and interestingly... His original business that went bankrupt became the Cadillac Motor Company. Walt Disney actually started in Kansas City, Missouri with his first business. And through no fault of his own, frankly, through people that he was dealing with, ended up in a situation where he couldn't pay the debts that had been incurred. So uh, he wrapped up his first business, ended up starting his second business in Los Angeles, and was one of the great success stories. And there were others. H.J. Uh, Hines had a bankruptcy transition in his career. And Milton Hershey, I think, actually went bankrupt twice before he figured out how to come up with a business model that actually worked. Hershey, yeah, 
Hershey bar. But second chances weren't always part of the American dream. Back in the day, if you couldn't pay up, you were sent to jail. In the 1830s and 40s, the creditors pursuing their debtors would simply note in their accounts, GTT, gone to Texas. And the notion that's where the debtors had fled to start over. Harvard Law Professor Bruce Mann. I'm a legal historian. I've written about bankruptcy, insolvency, imprisonment for debt in the American Revolutionary Era. Then, as today, says Mann, debt affected every strata of society. James Wilson, one of the framers of the Constitution, was arrested and imprisoned several times for debt. In fact, he died fleeing his creditors even while he was a sitting justice of the United States Supreme Court. There was a huge shift in the 18th century because as the economy grew more complex, grew more commercial, people were taking risks all the time. And they came to recognize that when you take risks, stuff happens that's just not your fault. A storm sinks a ship that you have a cargo on, or pirates uh, or privateers take it over. Uh, Hailstorms wipe out crops. No cracked earth, no blistering sun, no burning wind, no grasshoppers are a permanent match for the indomitable American farmers and stockmen and their wives and children who have carried on through desperate days and inspire us with their self-reliance, their tenacity, and their courage. None of these are measures of your moral worth, but they are part of economic risk. And it seemed that economic risk-taking really was part of, even at then, what became sort of an American national character. So there was an evolving moral code, but what really spurred change was a series of near-financial catastrophes. Throughout American history, federal bankruptcy laws have come in response to financial panic, financial collapse. So the first Federal Bankruptcy Act in 1800 was to clean up some of the ruin left by the financial panic of 1797. Revisions continued until after the Great Depression. In 2005, Congress passed the Bankruptcy Abuse Prevention and Consumer Protection Act to try to prevent fraud in the system. But for the most part, the laws for entrepreneurs have remained intact. And Bruce Mann says that's crucial for our economic growth. One of the things that has always distinguished America, in addition to the entrepreneurship, is the at least the, the recurrent availability of mechanisms to allow people to pick themselves up and start again. And in the case of small business entrepreneurs, to roll the dice again and do it again and again as long as it takes. Pick yourself up, dust yourself off, start all over again. This is no one could teach you to dance in a million years. This hour was written and edited by Martha Little and produced by Rob Sachs, with additional production help from Flawn Williams. You can hear past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. You can find us on the TuneIn or the new America Abroad app, or visit us on our website, americaabroad.org. I'm Barbara Bogave, and this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. Support for this show was provided by Public Radio International stations and listeners like you. Support was also provided by Turkish Airlines. PRI, Public Radio International.